This is a recording made in the chapel of the open book under the covering title Christian Fundamentals and the series dealing with redemption and atonement. And this is number nine of that series. This evening we're considering the first of the many consequences of redemption and we'll be dealing particularly with the pilgrim pathway of the believer. Those of you who are listening to this recording, if you care to join us in our reading, will you switch off for a little while and read together with us 2 Corinthians chapters 4 and 5. We have been giving our attention for a number of these meetings to the basis of all our hopes, the sacrificial work of Christ, which can be subdivided largely under two headings, redemption, a deliverance out from, atonement, an access and an acceptance leading us in. Well now, there's a limit to the time that we can spend on these wonderful and magnificent things. I feel the time has come now to say, well, let's look at some of the consequences of it. And you say, well, how many meetings will that be? Friends, I've tried to think, and there seems to be no end. We must consider justification. We must consider sanctification. We must consider the gift of life, forgiveness, peace, access, acceptance. Oh dear. And yet, are we going to avoid this? Certainly not. Now this evening, we're going to consider one consequence of redemption which immediately covers the whole of our attitude in this life. It's not like the forgiveness of sins or like access and acceptance. It means that the moment you accept Christ as your Saviour, if you are in harmony with the will of God, it alters the whole of your prospects. It gives you a different orientation and according to the teaching of Scripture, this world then becomes very much like the 40 years in the wilderness. You're sustained by his grace. You're fed, as it were, from heaven. You have his guidance in front of you, but you don't get very much else. You remember how the children of Israel, they loathed the light bread that was given them. They, they weren't given luxuries, and neither you nor I should expect them. Now, the first passage I would like you to turn to is Exodus chapter 12, because that is the great chapter which gives us the picture of redemption. The Passover is the outstanding type of redemption. It was most specifically a deliverance out of Egypt, and as far as we know, it didn't carry with it any consequences in the sense of forgiveness and access and all that. They weren't a, bit, uh, a greatly changed people. The blood was on the doorpost. But whether it was applied to their hearts and consciences is another matter. That may have taken a long time afterwards with the discipline in the wilderness and the tabernacle service and the ministry of priests and so on. But there was one thing, one thing which is impressed upon you as you read Exodus 12. Shall we look directly at verse 11? Dealing with the Passover lamb. And thus shall ye eat it with your loins girded your shoes on your feet, your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. 
out of almost everything there which is contrary to biblical practice. You know as well as I do that in the East and in the days when the Bible was written, nobody would go to their meal without loosening their robes, throwing aside their girdle. When you read in the scriptures, gird up your loins, it means activity. It means getting ready for work. So they were to change their manner of life immediately. They were to take their meal with their loins girded, but not only so. The Eastern left his shoes at the door. And usually, his feet were washed. Very rightly so, in a hot country like that. But it says, you've got to have your shoes on your feet. And not only so, you've got to sit down or stand up or whatever they did for their meal with their staff in their hand. And then, extraordinary admonition, you've got to eat it in haste. Now most people know that's very, very wrong and most children have been warned by their parents don't bolt your food, take it quietly. Now why this sudden change? Don't you see? This is the necessary outcome of being a redeemed person. The moment you're redeemed, you become a pilgrim. You change your habits. You've already started on a journey which will only end ultimately in glory. These people went through typical experiences, but they went uh, eventually under the leadership of Joshua through the Jordan into the land of promise. Well, that is one of, the, one of the outstanding consequences of being redeemed. You become a tent dweller. You become a pilgrim and a stranger. If you look at chapter 13, verse 20, you'll discover that the first stop on their pilgrimage is noted. Verse 20, and they took their journey from Succoth and encamped in Etam in the edge of the wilderness. Now the word Succoth is the word that is translated a booth, a temporary structure, a tent. So their very first stage of their journey was reminding them, tent dwellers. And that word comes in the Feast of Tabernacles. I'm going to read a few verses from Nehemiah the 8th chapter starting at verse 14, but if you have any difficulty in finding it, just listen, because for the time you found it, I should have gone somewhere else. 8.14 And they found written in the law which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths in the feast of the seventh month, and they, that they should publish and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go forth into the mountain, fetch olive branches and pine branches and myrtle branches and palm branches and branches of thick trees to make booths, as it is written. And so, down to the end of the chapter. And then I will not turn to the passage and I will not quote it in full. But in the prophecy of Zechariah, the last chapter, when the nations are now under the discipline of the day of the Lord, when Jerusalem is the centre, and the, from that centre will radiate the mind and will of God throughout the earth, the one feast that they are under an obligation to observe is not the Passover, but the Feast of Tabernacles. The one thing that they must observe, as though it's impressing upon them, even at that late date, the necessity to remember that this is an important feature. 
so much for that. As I say, we've got in front of us this evening uh, a big subject, and I shall have to be um, careful not to overstep the bounds. One or two friends from the other side of the Atlantic have complained that I speak rather rapidly. Well, friends, I could speak much more rapidly, if needs be, but I hope I shan't do that. Uh, but it's utterly impossible to cover the subjects we have in front of us if I should adopt a certain deliberate way of speaking to you. Oh, you wouldn't want me to, would you? I wouldn't be able to keep it up. So we'll forget all about that. Well, now, I want you to look at Leviticus 25.23. Leviticus 25.23. The whole chapter is important because it deals with the Jubilee and its bearing upon possessing leaseholds and freeholds and so on in Israel. And then comes this statement in verse 23. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity. I mean, even we, in our legal phraseology, you can even get a lease on premises for 999 years. You know that, don't you? It's all because there's an end. There must, must not be in perpetuity. And you know why you're called freeholders? You're not free owners. The whole land belongs to the queen. But as she can't do everything in it, she lets it out to the nobility and they let it out to others and at last you and I might get a bit of it. But it's a freeholding. So there's much of the same idea in our legal procedure as was in Israel. The land should not be sold unto perpetuity. For the land is mine. That's God speaking. For ye are strangers and sojourners with me. Now don't gloss over those words. God says, you're strangers and sojourners. Oh, that's right. But so am I, said God. I'm sharing it with you. You see, we will continually think about God as dwelling in the highest heaven, surrounded by angels and principalities and powers and glory beyond dreams. And if he'd remain there, friends, we should be hopeless and helpless and undone. It's because he laid aside his glory it's because he put the riches on one side. It's out of the poverty of the Son of God we are redeemed, not his magnificence. That's a lesson we need to remember. And he says, I'm not asking you to put up with all the inconveniences of a pilgrim pathway. I'm walking with you. These same similar words are found in Genesis 23. Abraham is now negotiating for the purchase of a field as a burial ground. And it's very significant, friends, that the only piece of land which Abraham bought and paid for and possessed in the land of promise was a place to bury his wife. But you say, surely that indicates a lack of faith. It would be unless he saw something infinitely better and infinitely more wonderful, and was quite willing to wait. We'll see that in a moment. Genesis 23, verse 4. Abraham is speaking to the sons of Heth, and in verse 10 you'll find that they are Hittites. And if you'll look at the promise of the land in chapter 15, we won't turn to it, the Hittites were included in the territory given to Abraham. So he's speaking to people that he knew for possessing land that belonged to him. And yet he said, I am a stranger and a sojourner with you. Give me possession of a burial place. 
Well now, one other passage is demanding consideration on this score immediately, Hebrews chapter 11. And I would like you to turn to that because I don't think I've got resolution enough to just read one verse and pass by on the other side. Hebrews 11. This is emphasizing the character of faith that endures as seeing the invisible. We've already had that expressed in our reading in 2 Corinthians 4. Now it says here, verse 8, By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for inheritance, obeyed. And he went out, not knowing whither he went. The passage we read just now, I think, included the words, We walk by faith and not by sight. There's a parallel. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country. It was in the land of promise, and yet he acted as though he were in a strange country. Dwelling in tabernacles. Now let's stop, because sometime or another we must. To us, readers of the Old Testament, in the authorised version, if you speak of the word tabernacle, you immediately think of that gorgeous structure that was put up in the wilderness, with all its cherubim work, with its blue and its purple and its scarlet and its gold. But friends, remember this, that not a single Israelite ever saw inside it. Only the priests and the order of Levites who packed it up and rolled it away saw it. What Israel saw was a tent with just badger skins outside. Just an ordinary rough looking tent. Inside, wonderful, but outside, a tent very much like the ones in which they live themselves. And so it says, I'm going to alter the wording then, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. Why? For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. So there was a reason. He had something revealed to him that attracted his heart and his faith and his hope, so much so that he was willing to live like a stranger in the land of promise because of the better hope, because of the better things with which Hebrews is associated. Well now if you will turn to um, the closing chapter of Hebrews, you will find that it echoes some of these things. Chapter 13, verse 13. Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach, for here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. Now whatever you do, do not slip into the way of quoting or misquoting this verse with the Bible shut. Let us go forth therefore without the camp. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say we're going without the camp. It says we're going unto him. And if he happens to be outside the camp, we'll go outside the camp. But if he's inside the camp, we'll stop in. We're not going out because we're each males and our hand against every man. It's The great thing is, he's a pilgrim and a sojourner with us. And so we say, where my Lord is, is good enough for me. That's the first thing. And then it says, without the camp. Now this word camp, especially when I was looking in the book of the Revelation, when they encompassed the camp of the saints about, I confessed 
that before I'd examined the passage very closely, I'd conjured up a sort of Keswick convention. A nice big tent with hymns being sung and everything lovely. The tent. When I looked at the word itself, I found that six times over it's translated a castle with Roman soldiers in it. It's translated the camp of the aliens, enemies, and in the Old Testament, it's in nearly always associated with war. The first chapters of the book of Numbers, when the camp is there struck, the only qualification to be a member of that camp is to be over 20 years of age and able to go forth to war. Instead of the word camp and tabernacle indicating peace, perfect peace, it meant a temporary structure, always on the move, surrounded by foes visible and invisible. Oh, you say, what a lovely subject they're going to take. Well, I'm not here to choose whether it's lovely or otherwise. I have a responsibility, and I could not pick out the consequences of redemption and say, peace, perfect peace, and all that, and forget the other side. This is the other side. So here we are. It says, let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. Will you look at chapter 11? Speaking of Moses, verse 26, esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. It's picking, this, this little cluster of verses in chapter 13 is picking up and practically putting together all that he's been saying in this 11th chapter and 12th chapter. For here we have no continuing city. Continuing city? What sort of city is that? Well, one that lasts. Or is there one that's not going to last? Well, we go back to, to chapter 12. Verse 25, See that you refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifies the removing of those things that are shaken, as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. We therefore receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. You see? He says we're out for a continuing city, not one that's going to be shaken. And Abraham expressed it in other language. He looked for a city which had foundations. Well, you see, surely every city's got foundations. Yes, but they won't stand up to this shaking, friends. The only foundation upon which he could rest is this perfect work of Christ, symbolised, as you know, finally by those twelve foundations of the heavenly city, foundations of a city never yet seen on earth until God sends it down to give us his pictorial type of what a city is in his estimation. And then once more, we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. And coming back to chapter 11, it says, verse 14, For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And if they were mindful of turning back, all they would have found plenty of opportunity. There's no need for me to enlarge on that. So I leave that with you. Well now will you turn with me to one or two passages which show you how God himself has intimated that he himself is sharing with us in this tent-dwelling pilgrim attitude. If you ask me how God in heaven can be said to do such a thing, 
I'll just plainly tell you I don't know. But I'm not here to tell you all that I think or all that I understand. I'm only here to open the book and let it speak to you. And then if we've got our problems, well, we'll have to take them to the Lord in prayer and he may enlighten us further as it pleases him. 1 Chronicles 29.15 1 Chronicles 29.15 Here is um, one of the statements made with regard to temple and tabernacle and so on. David is speaking for we are strangers before thee and sojourners of all our fathers. Our days on the earth are as a shadow and there is none abiding. This is David uh, bringing this very thought right forward in connection as he faces his end and as he faces the inability that he had laid upon him to leave the building of a temple to his son. Now will you turn back to 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7. And it came to pass, when the king sat in his house, and the Lord had given him rest round about from all his enemies, that the king said unto Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwelleth in curtains. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in thine heart, for the Lord is with thee. And it came to pass that night, that the word of the Lord came unto Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, Thus saith the Lord, Shalt thou build me a house for me to dwell in? Whereas I have not dwelt in any house since the time that I brought up the children of Israel out of Egypt, even at this day, but have walked in a tent and in a tabernacle. God says he walked in a tent. Because, you see, it was a moving thing. Day after day it was moving. And one of the words that is used for Moving is to pull up, that's the tent pegs, pack up and off again. God says, I'm sharing that with you. I never said to anybody, why not build me a house? The time came when a house was built, but not by David, but by Solomon, who was the picture of the Prince of Peace. We'll see that in a moment. In all the places wherein I have walked with all the children of Israel, spake I a word with any of the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to feed my people Israel, saying, Why build ye not me a house of cedar? Well, we go further. And we find in 1 Kings chapter 5, 3, 4, these words. 1 Kings chapter 5, 3, 4. Thou knowest how that David my father could not build an house unto the name of the Lord his God for the wars which were about him on every side until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. And now the Lord my God hath given me rest on every side. You see, there's the difference. David had war on every side. Solomon had got rest on every side. So he's a picture of another aspect of the work of Christ subsequent and beyond the present pilgrim pathway. So that there's a dispensational reason for a tent in the wilderness and a temple in the city. And until you reach the city, it's no temple for God or man, but it's a tent for God and man. He walks with you and, as it were, suffers those inconveniences. Well, there's plenty more that I've got down on my paper that I must pass because I shall never get through even to touch upon this whole subject. Well now the next is this, 
I'm not even going to turn to the scriptures. I'm just going to remind you, and you can test it for yourself if you haven't got the passages in your mind. In the six days creation, on the second day, we read that God said, let there be a firmament. And that word in the margin is explained for you as the Hebrew word meaning an expansion, something thin and stretched out. And then to take one passage only, in the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22, God speaks as stretching out the heavens as a curtain and like a tent to dwell in. So that all I'm going to say, and I could say a lot more of course if we had time, is that the very beginning of God's dealing with this world in the redemptive element was that he made it like a tent to dwell in. He, he already constructed this world in the figure of a tent so that the, from the very beginning there should be this element about it. God himself, as it were, vacated his glory and the comfort of heaven to share with those who were tent dwellers till the witness was over. I can hardly dare to quote Shakespeare where Henry V at Agincourt says he has given up all the soft living in a palace in London and goes to share with the hardship of his soldiers till the word is over. But there's a parallel if you could endure it. But we come on. We come now to another phase. You see, I've got on this chart the whole thing. We've got the six days creation and then there's the tabernacle erected Exodus 25 and I've said there very kindly and nicely see separate chart. Well, that means to say it's too vast for us to do anything with in the few moments that we have. Then we've got a very rough and ready looking tabernacle. And before we deal with that, I think we should have to deal with that as our final aspect. I would like you to turn to John 1, 14, uh, just to see for yourself the way in which our Saviour has put into effect that God himself says, you are strangers and sojourners, tent dwellers, pilgrims with me. It says in John 1, the first verse, first three verses, that he was in the beginning and he made all things. Well, if you've got no theories in the back of your mind, anybody who was in the beginning and made all things is the one mentioned in Genesis 1, verse 1. But we are not told that we draw our salvation and all our blessings from him who was in the beginning and made all things, we draw our blessings and our salvation when he laid aside his glory and his seed in verse 14. And the word who was in the beginning and made all things, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Now that word dwelt is the word to dwell in a tent or a tabernacle. To dwell in a moving structure and when you come to think of him, he was born at Bethlehem, he moved to Nazareth, he lived in different parts, Capernaum, he had somewhere, sometimes not where to lay his head. He was a pilgrim in heart and spirit. Never held by the things of this life, they held him loosely. But he's sharing it with you and with me, even now in spirit. So there we have the reference to Christ, who himself tabernacled or tented among us. Well, that leaves it possible now for me to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and 5. 
2 Corinthians chapter 4 and 5 is useful in this sense, that it shows you that we, the believers, are intimately associated with this condescension of God, this pilgrim character, that the very life we live now and the very body we possess and all the things associated with it still come under this one figure living in a tent. Shall we pick up our story in verse 16 of chapter 4? For which cause we faint not. But though the outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. So here we have an outward man and an inward man. And the outward man is perishing. Now, you could emphasize that so much as to forget the next statement, that the inward man is renewed day by day. We want them both. If you are conjuring with the idea that your outward man is not perishing, well, you're in for disappointment. But if you forget that the inward man is renewed day by day, you're setting aside a great encouragement. Let's have them both. The outward man is going to be likened to a tent, a crazy structure that the best of tents are not very stable. If you've ever had any dealings with sleeping and living in a tent, you'll know that a, a cow coming along in the night rubbing its head up and down will have the whole thing down. Or a sudden gust of wind. Or something going wrong with the guy ropes. You see, that's the outward man. But don't let us forget that Hebrews chapter 11, taking the word substance as it was used, that faith is the title deeds of things hoped for. Don't forget that these tent dwellers living in that crazy structure are carrying with them the title deeds to a mansion in glory. So there's two sides to that. Now we move on. I was writing to someone who has been under great affliction. <coughs> a friend that I met in Riverside, California, in a letter recently, he said that his wife has been stretched flat on her back for seven years, and he's living a life of great trial himself. Well, I couldn't very much say much to him personally, but I drew his attention to certain scriptures. I thought the comfort of the scriptures was the best. And I reminded him here, that this man could say in verse 17, for our light affliction, now Paul isn't, telling somebody else that their affliction is light. He's saying that his own was light. And when you think of the things that man went through, you say, how can you say that, Paul? And it's but for a moment. And he's working for us a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory. If I stop there, it's all untrue. It depends on the condition. And that's in the next verse. While. If next, the next verse is true of you, the rest will be, while we look not at the things which are seen. So here we are the same as Hebrews 11. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Moses endured as seeing him that is invisible. This element, so here it is. While we look not at the things which are seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal age abiding. Now, he turns it all to this question of the tabernacle element. This time, not so much with regard to dispensational aspect of things, or even doctrinal teaching, but to do with our own individual personal life 
living and the body that we have at this present time. Now our version reads in first verse of chapter 5, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle, well strictly speaking that's not very good English, the earthly house of this tabernacle. I don't want to go into grammar particularly, but the genitive of has a variety of meanings. And the particular one here used is best rendered by putting it like this. For we know that if our earthly house, that is to say, this tabernacle, not of it, but that is to say, uh, it's in apposition. I've said one thing, I'll say it again this way. The earthly house is a tent. Your earthly house is a tent. This body that you possess is a tent. This outward man that is perishing is a tent. You see? Now then, we know that if the earthly house that is to say, this tent were dissolved, let down, taken to pieces, collapse, fold up. For what of it? We have a building of God. A house not made with hands. Eternal. In the heavens. Oh, you see, then we, we, we are pilgrims of hope. This crazy structure of ours is all very well here, but there's a day coming when this body of our humiliation is going to be transfigured like unto the body of his glory. Is that not good news? Isn't it here? We're not decrying the wonder of the life we now live. But if God can lavish as he has done such marvellous ingenuity in this body of ours, I mean, you, you think of a motor car and into the self-same spout you put nuts, bolts, screws, springs, oil, petrol, all the old lot goes in and it sorts itself all out at the finish. And then you've never heard of a motor car yet that presently has a little one, little baby. I can't remember called babies, but here, we are so constructed that we can reproduce another one. That's a marvellous bit of creation. And God has spent all the wealth of that wonder on a tent that might collapse at any minute. What will he do then when the body that he makes for you in glory is to be eternal in the heavens, not made with hands, not of this creation, but belonging to that? So he's giving you this to guide you. <coughs> then it says, <coughs> Oh, I must now turn for a moment to two st st statements in the epistles of Peter to show you that not only Paul, but Peter had this same view. 2 Peter chapter 1. Uh, no, let's look at 2 Peter chapter 1, yes. Verse 13 and 14. Yea, I think it meet, as long as I am in this tabernacle or this tent, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle even as our Lord Jesus Christ hath showed me. Well, that was Peter's way of speaking. He said, I know that my time is drawing to a limit. Paul used the figure of a race, where he said, I have finished my course, I've touched the tape. This man says, I'm just about now to put off this my tent. 
But while I'm in it, he says, I'm going to keep on telling you these things. And then in the first of Peter, chapter 2, verse 11, he refers it of themselves. 1 Peter 2, verse 11. Dearly beloved, I beseech you, as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. You will find that sometimes the order is a stranger and a pilgrim. And sometimes you'll find the order is a pilgrim and a stranger. Well, you start worrying over that. Because the answer is, you are a pilgrim because you're a stranger. And you're a stranger because you're a pilgrim. Isn't it obvious? Here you've been separated by redemption. And you've got a glorious hope in front of you. And you've seen some of the vanity of the things that are obsessing the mind of people that makes you a strange person and turns you into a pilgrim. And then, you have become a pilgrim because God intends you should be, so as a pilgrim you become a strange person. It's two ways, you see. But I won't stop too long on that. I see the light has been up now for some time. So, here we have again this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're back again. Verse 2. For in this we groan. Groan. Now you'll discover that the creation is groaning according to Romans the 8th chapter. The creation is groaning, waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. And not only the creation is groaning, but we that have the first fruits of the Spirit, we ourselves groan within ourselves. A groan is going up to the throne of God from a creation that has been subject to vanity struggle as it will, it doesn't seem to be able to throw the bondage off. But there's a comfort, because the Spirit himself made it intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. The Spirit of God himself is sharing with the groan of creation. And so he says, so are you. You too are groaning sometimes under the burden of all the things that you can see around you that are contrary to God and his truth. And seeing all the things that must be endured yet, you cannot be impassive. You cannot say it doesn't worry me. It should in some measure have an effect upon us, but not to cast us down unduly. So it says, for in this tent we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. There's a mixture of figures here. To be clothed upon with a house doesn't seem to be quite what we say walking on all fours, but he's dealing with a peculiar character of uh, subject. He's dealing with a body which is likened to a tent. He's looking forward to a house not made with hands, and so he's getting the uh, figures rather mixed. Not that I'm criticising the scriptures, there's no way out of it. But nevertheless, it's in harmony with the teaching of scripture to be clothed upon with humility, to be clothed upon with the garments of salvation. It's one of the ways in which it expresses you are reaching the goal and the fruition and the fullness of redemption. So we groan within ourselves. Then it says in verse 4, For we that are in this tent do groan, being burdened. But the one thing about it is, not that we would be unclothed, we're not hoping the whole tent's going to collapse and leave us there in the middle of a field. That would be foolish. A person 
who hasn't got any idea and, and says, boasts, oh, I'm not afraid of death and all that sort of thing, doesn't upset me. I said, you're hardly human, because it's an enemy. And an enemy is somebody to be feared, if scripture is true. But we're delivered from the bondage of the fear of death. We know that if the earthly house of this tabernacle does collapse, we've got something to the other side that's eternal and lasting. That's the thing that enables us to endure. Not because we're Stoics. Not that we will be unclothed, but clothed upon that mortality might be swallowed up of life. And this word swallowed up is echoed from 1 Corinthians 15. For in 1 Corinthians 15 it says, death is swallowed up in victory. And mortality is going to be swallowed up of life. So, the time you've got a tent that's swallowed up, you see, uh, figures sometimes fail. But I think we can be sympathetic with the Apostle. We can see how he has tried to show that the pilgrim character is there from the beginning of Exodus 12. We are starting on a journey. We are tent dwellers. Here we have no continuing city. No man that war has entangled himself for the affairs of his livelihood. Doesn't mean to say he hasn't to seek his livelihood. He should. But he doesn't get entangled in it. He leaves the other man to get entangled and get twice as much a week, but he says, all right, I can wait. I've got something eternal and lasting that justifies it all. So here we have once again then a rather rapid survey of a tremendous subject. We are tent dwellers. I do play with the word I must confess when I say that Abraham was content to dwell in a tent. The contentment is not because he didn't know anything about civilization, because even the archaeologist has proved to us that Ur of the Chaldees was no mean city with any amount of amenities that we hardly credit with to them. And yet he turned his back on the knot and was willing to be a tent dweller and a pilgrim and a stranger. But he had one compensation which the world could neither give nor take away. He walked in fellowship with his God. And that tent dweller who possessed only enough ground to bury himself and his wife received a title which all the nobility of this world could never vie with. He was called the friend of God. So I commend to you, the first consequence of being redeemed is to become a pilgrim, a sojourner, a stranger, but not a hopeless one. A one that's groaning, but it's a light affliction and it's working for us a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory. And the glory of it, when we look out of our tent door and see how the other man is getting on, we do not look very far before we see his tent. And he says, you are strangers and sojourners with me. And with me sums up all our hopes for this life and that which is to come. May the Lord grant unto us that as we pursue this subject, and see other consequences, as we've already indicated, those which we think more important, perhaps, uh, basic, justification, sanctification, forgiveness, life, peace, access, acceptance, and all the others. They all belong to the one character. They're all enjoyed by people who are willingly tent dwellers 
willingly strangers, willingly pilgrims, because they have their eye, as Moses did, on that which was exceedingly more wonderful. He had respect unto the recompense, the recompense of the reward that comes in the future. I commend this subject to you. I've only skimmed it. I've touched upon its various points. If you are careful to go through the scriptures yourself and those other passages which are linked with them, I feel sure you'll find that it's an enriching subject and one that will colour and uh, illuminate some of the problems that we meet in this present world as we are passing through the enemy country with the prospect in front of us of an inheritance that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for us.